two insurers leave Indiana's Obamacare marketplace, and political finger-pointing follows. Secretary Lawson goes to Washington. That plus I-69 delay costs, syringe exchange problems, and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending June 23, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, two of the largest health insurance providers left Indiana's Affordable Care Act marketplace. Medwise and Indianapolis-based Anthem, the only two companies currently available in every Indiana county, both announced they'd pull out of Indiana's Obamacare marketplace next year. The companies cited volatility in the market, noting, quote, changes and uncertainty in federal operations, rules, and guidance contributed to their departure. Republicans seized on the news as signs of Obamacare's failure, criticizing Democratic Senator Joe Donnelly's continued support of the federal health care law. Democrats, conversely, pointed to the insurance company's reasoning as signs that Republicans are sabotaging Obamacare. Who's to blame for insurers leaving Indiana's ACA marketplace? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican John Hammond, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. John Hammond, are Republicans sabotaging Obamacare? Well, no, of course not. It, uh, it's cratering, and as I call it, it used to be called the Affordable Care Act, of course. It currently is. I call it the Unaffordable Care Act, and it's just not sustainable. It hasn't really been. It was a risky uh, experiment um, uh, put forth on a Christmas Eve vote by the Democrats and the Obama, Obama administration, and we knew there would be some details that have to be worked out. We had hoped a lot of things would work out. When these exchanges came online in 2014, we'd hoped those would work. They haven't. We've had people leave the market. There are fewer choices. Premiums are higher, and costs are rising. There have been cracks showing in Obamacare for a while. Is this just the continued... No, this is a concerted effort on the Republican part to undermine the bill. I mean, certainly there, nobody ever thought the original bill passed didn't need reform, including the president. President Obama, that is, of course. Uh, they always thought there would, would be reform that would be necessary. The Republicans blocked it. And this is a perfect example. You have Anthem, for example, a large Indiana employer, and apparently not all that concerned about leaving 140,000 people who get subsidies out in the cold. But in one sense, you can't blame Anthem. Because what you've got here is the Republicans trying not to pay the subsidies that are currently owed. They're trying to make certain that the money doesn't get allocated, even though they owe it. Then they're saying in two years there won't be any subsidies. And the uncertainty of this, they're supposed to invest more resources into a market. It's not going to happen. So the Republicans are deliberately sabotaging it and then claiming that the problem is with Obamacare. It isn't. It's with the Republican uncertainty and the threats made against it. And apparently they don't care if 24 million people are going to go without health insurance well, under their proposal. No. What's happened here, that trying to run an insurance market when people are leaving it, we try to enforce it's not everybody in the state. They are. No. The, the healthy ones are leaving, the, the ones who are not paid, healthy are sick, and so the premiums are where people have dropped out because it's yeah. just too high. Yeah. And this uh -huh. is the, the, the principles of insurance require 
certainty. somebody from the private they market require certainty. to and come that's in one thing and you've serve them. that population. That population is not doesn't uh, spread that risk broad enough for them to stay in the business. And you want to take out any penalty for not having insurance coverage. That's one of the other Senate provisions. So you're not going to spread well, that. Why, why, that's why premiums for why, seniors are going to go up what by I'm five for is, times the for amount. For instance, Joe Donnelly, who voted for this thing to begin with, I want... Oh, okay, I see. Well, you're, John let, Young let doesn't know whether he's going to vote for the Senate version. No, we'll talk about that in a second. But here's... Uh -huh. here's so what, what needs to happen is that when you have a situation where you've got that risk not being spread across the groups... Yeah. You, you, you cannot have government force what ought to be a patient-focused as opposed to a government-run no. health care. It's, ne it's never going to be patient-focused. John Katzenberg, I want to ask this. It's never going to be patient-focused. It was never going to work to begin with. Seven oh, insurers yeah, in the marketplace two years ago, four or last year, four this year, now two next year. Was this always going to happen, whether Republicans at the federal level were playing around with it or not? As Ann pointed out, there were needed changes. Changes were needed in the, in the marketplace and in the structure of the marketplace because, as John points out, you have to have mm -hmm. risk spread across as wide a group as you possibly can, and that includes a lot of healthy people as well as people who are not healthy. And the problem was young, healthy people who um, uh, you know, don't necessarily feel like they need health insurance were not coming into the market in the numbers that were anticipated. And there were a lot of reasons for that. Some of them had private insurance, some were not getting insurance and paying the penalties because it wasn't that steep. There are a lot of reasons for that. But there were no adjustments made from the time the law passed until the time we're at right now. And without those adjustments, uh, and they were needed, I mean, they absolutely were needed, um, you have a situation where you've got falling off, um, people falling out of the system, and, and you've got to have people paying the premiums in order to have the system work. So without those adjustments, it really was bound to fail. John Schwannis, let me put it this way. If Hillary Clinton were president, would we be seeing insurers pulling out of the marketplaces both here in Indiana and across the country? I think not certainly in the manner that we're seeing. Uh, clearly, insurance providers survive because of and thrive because of uncertainties in life. That's, that's the definition <laughs> of insurance. But if you're, if you're in the C-suite in an insurance company or you are a large investor in one of those publicly traded companies like Anthem, uh, uncertainty is not your friend. This is, the, this is when you're loath to, to have uncertainty. And when you have, uh, I mean, this is a situation where you know it's not going to, it's never going to be better than it, it was uh, and because of the erosion of support, not erosion, I, I guess that would suggest a slow uh, removal of support, the, the you know, drop gone off, off the drop support. off uh, of support. And clearly, uh, their investors are not going to want that uncertainty. There's a fiduciary responsibility of, on the part of a lot of these companies. I mean, they, they have to operate in a, in a sound manner. And if you have a, a regulatory climate that suggests that they are operating in a haphazard way, I, I imagine so, the lawyers will be right, moving, uh, moving, filing moving. Other, in other directions. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Let's all be thoughtful about it and fix it. I think we can agree well, we on that. we could have fixed it for the last right. four years, and you Sorry wouldn't. To... Oh, that's fine. <laughs> Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our IceMiller email and text alerts. This week's question, what's to blame for large insurers leaving Indiana's Affordable Care Act marketplace? A, the Affordable Care Act's flaws. B, federal Republicans sabotaging the program. Or C, something else. Last week's question, should congressional Democrats be suing Donald Trump? 66% of respondents say, yes, they should. 34% said no. 
If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org IWIR and look for the poll. Well, Indiana Secretary of State Connie Lawson testified before the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee this week. The Senate committee examined election security and possible Russian efforts to influence and manipulate the 2016 elections. Lawson, representing the National Association of Secretaries of State, said there is no evidence that vote casting or vote counting was manipulated in any state or county. But she also expressed concerns that election officers around the country, such as herself, weren't informed by the Obama administration about a hacking threat to election software in several states. And Delaney, should top election officials in states around the country have more access to key classified information like without, Secretary Lawson requested? Without security clearances? Uh, you know, look, she's already testified that there was no, there was no uh, vote tampering in Indiana. I think of Connie Lawson, who actually had had a reputation for being relatively bipartisan, hadn't jumped on board this right-wing uh, alternate facts uh, debacle out there saying that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, she'd have a little bit more credibility. She should spend her time focusing on how to encourage people to vote rather than the voter suppression, which has been the mark of the Republican Party for the last 10 years. And if she did that, she could have more time and more effort to worry about security concerns. Instead, all they do is worry about vote suppression. That's what her goal has been. The Obama administration and, and Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, in a call with election officials in the weeks before the election, did not disclose right. that there had been a hacking threat to these uh, election systems used in places including Indiana. Right. How do you weigh the balance between <coughs> classified information but well, letting these election officials know what they need? You know, there were two IP addresses from Indiana that allowed then someone to hack into the Arizona system. And that was known in the fall of 2016. It was just disclosed to us two weeks ago. So we can't, <coughs> an election official like Connie Lawson <coughs> or any Secretary of State really cannot intercede or, or intervene, I should say, when there's been a penetration like that. Once they read it in the newspaper, it's too late. <coughs> so. I think one of the things that she's doing in her role as the national chair for the Secretaries yeah, of State President Association yeah. is not that she's joining some bandwagon of sorts, and she is there in an official capacity to talk on behalf of states and how they view their role as state election officials, and that the fact that the federal government did not inform them properly that, and timely to, for them to be able to continue to do their jobs. John, if she hadn't jumped on the whole thing about whether or not there was intervening in the voting that stole the election from Donald Trump, she'd have a lot more credibility. She, she, well, I don't argument. know that. I, I guess I'm. I'm She's on I, the commission that's going to look into well, whether that, but, or not there was wholesale voter fraud well, gonna, for Donald Trump. So they're going to examine something uh -huh. in a thoughtful way, and no, you're, some, you're assuming some sort they're of outcome come up with before they've even done it. John, John. I want to ask this, though. Based on what so, Connie Lawson said, you know, give us more information when we need to know it. But at the same time, that the federal government had classified the elections, the, the voting systems as critical infrastructure, and which gives the federal government more authority to go in and, and, well, to go in when necessary. She wants that designation taken away. So is she speaking out of both sides of her mouth? It's a tough one. Because the way we operate in this country, states maintain and operate their own elections. I mean, we have federal elections, and people may say, oh, mm. this, this presidential election is certainly being administered uh, out of Washington, D.C. Well, no, it's not. No. And that's why you have certain states that are open from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m., and others that are different hours, and some that have mail-in ballots, and some that don't. And so 
it, it's not that she's wanting it both ways. It's that the, the actually, actual administration of elections, as they have grown up in our country, have it two ways. It is fundamentally a state operation, but clearly now we're dealing with international threats and implications that traditionally the federal government has dealt with that certainly were not the case, would not have been the case uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Given that system that has always existed in this country of each state deciding how its elections are run for the most part, it, does that system start to fall apart given the, the electoral threats we now face? Well, it doesn't have to, um, but it certainly disperses that. As John said, there are 50-plus, because you have the territories also voting, uh, administrators of the election and, and ways of handling this. And some are better at technology, and some are better at security, and some are not. And so the choice is is to allow it to be as it always has been, and that's allow the states to run this fundamentally democratic process or to take it over at the federal level and, and let the federal government run it. And I don't think we really want to do that. So the hybrid here would probably be to work with the federal government, which has the apparatus to understand these threats better than the states do, and uh, have a way, a layer there where you can administer from the federal level security and pass that information down, but allow the states to continue to administer their own elections. That's hard. Yeah. And the reason that's hard is because it takes cooperation. And until we get that, we're going to have this standoff. All right. An Indiana County's needle exchange program is in jeopardy because of a funding dispute. Madison County's syringe exchange program was created in August 2015, one of the first in the state. But its future is in doubt after the county council tabled a funding request from the county health department. Some council members objected to the program's distribution of needles and other paraphernalia, seeking to halt use of county funds to do so but no county money is used to distribute needles. Those funds come from donations. The county prosecutor told the council that the health department was breaking the law. And in the wake of that dispute, Indiana State Health Commissioner Jerome Adams penned an op-ed, making an impassioned case and defense for syringe exchange programs. John Katzenberger, why is the state, or at least parts of the state, why are they still having a battle over syringe exchanges? Two reasons that I uh, can see. One is that it's expensive. You know, it's not an inexpensive, uh, because it's not just the needles, it's a lot of the other paraphernalia around that. Um, and so it takes money to be able to provide that, in, uh, that, that those uh, items. But more importantly, I think, is you still have an ideological battle. Um, you know, the legislature has broadened the program, but you still have local officials who are balking at that. And you even see internal uh, arguments in some places, I believe Madison County is one, where uh, the, the county infrastructure wants to do the needle exchanges, but the prosecutor there is very much against it. And, um, you know, the arguments are philosophical or ideological in that case. And so, you know, those are things that have to be worked out. And um, so between the cost and the ideological battles, that's why you still have the problems. Well, well, the cost is significant, certainly, but I think the data will show you that the cost of not providing yes. exchanges when you have the kinds of widespread outbreaks, as we saw in southern Indiana over the past couple of years, uh, when you had a dramatic increases in, in HIV-AIDS exposure and, and other types of hepatitis, you look at the, the public health impact and the cost associated with treating these individuals who are probably not sitting on Cadillac health care coverage, uh, to say the least. They won't have any, certainly, well, so that well, doesn't matter. It, it, so that's, the cost is, you're right, yeah, we'll in the work. mind of, of, of elected <laughs> officials and voters, it's, it's 
it's, it's easy. Pay it's it tough. up front or pay it later. But you're right. Yeah. This is a t that's the same notion. And John's right on both counts. It's the notion, you know, we're enabling this. Right. And you know, this so is I want to. I, I want to. I'm ask not about saying it. that's just the. That's the. the so argument. I want to ask about that ideological battle because absolutely it exists. And at the at the state level, you have the governor, and the legislature for the most part, and public health officials, including mm -hmm. the state health commissioner, who all say these work. And the attorney general, the new attorney general, and by extension the prosecutors association, who say we need to lock these people up and it doesn't work. Is that healthy for the state of Indiana? It, it is healthy and you all, both of you have made great points about this needle exchange program, what the state's role is in it, and the disagreement. The thing that the Holcomb administration has done is helped us get this discussion going. It is a tool, one of many, that needs to be uh, pursued in, in trying to deal with this HIV uh, issue that's happened and um, uh, Hep C and everything else that's occurred, Scott County being the, the biggest uh, concern that we've seen where the scourge has occurred. Uh, so there are differences of opinion about whether it works or doesn't, but we think it, there are many people who think, and I think it works, and we've, we can see some evidence of that, right? Talked about Scott County. It's, it's, a, it's a way by which we get people also into treatment. These programs encourage that discussion, identification of those who need help. And for instance, in Allen County, we've got 130 people being treated as a result. Uh, Fayette County, 115. Uh, we, are in, we have needle exchange programs authorized in eight counties in Indiana. I think uh, we'll be in better shape if we could have more. There's a le legitimate debate about uh, whether or not you're encouraging something of one kind or another. But on balance, uh, John made the point. We're a healthier state as a result of having it. This is a perfect example of a complete failure on the part of Mike Pence. This is a statewide problem. It's always been a statewide problem. It isn't county by county. And it's unfair to ask the counties, particularly in the counties where you have rural poverty as pronounced as you do in Scott County, to ask them to pick up the cost of these uh, kinds of programs. Mike Pence should have declared it as a statewide problem and dealt with it. Instead, his ideology trumped common sense. John's right. These programs work. And it isn't just in the HIV and the, and the Hep C context. It's also prison context. Are we going to treat these people? Are we going to rehabilitate them? Or are we going to lock them up at the cost of, what is it, twenty-five dollars or $30,000 a head a year? I mean, talk about right. money-wise and uh, penny-wise and pound-foolish. Well, but right. this should have been a statewide program. Mike Pence should have stepped up like a big boy and said it is and adapted it. Instead, he ran from the problem and did as little as he could to seem like he it, was dealing with it, it a band-aid. It took a while for the state and the legislature to figure out whether or not this could be effectuated and how, how are we going to run it. And I think you're right, it's, it's a costly program, but we do have programs. But a lot of it's now being donated. You know, we're trying to do this sort of off the taxpayer dime locally, so particularly for those uh, counties that don't have as much uh, local government tax revenue that we can help institute these programs. If we had a statewide program, it would be a drop in the statewide budget, and it would be a drop I think well like spent. a lot of other things, uh, we're, we're things moving in that direction. So let's well, see how we do. Yeah. Questions, have arisen, questions have arisen this week as to whether the state should have seen problems sooner with the company leading I-69 Section 5 construction. The state took control of I-69 Section 5 in the last week after repeated delays and the worsening financial situation of lead developer Isolux Corson, a Spanish-based company. The state says taking over the project won't cost taxpayers any more than already planned and could slightly reduce the price tag. 
but some are questioning whether the state did its due diligence when it selected I-69 development partners with Isolux as its head. The company had no experience building roads or bridges in the U.S. and saw nine of its company officials arrested on embezzlement charges in Spain soon after the deal with the state was signed. John Schwanner, should the state have stepped in sooner to take control? Uh, probably so. I mean, I'm no civil engineer, but I, I diagnosed this problem a long time ago <laughs> because I have one son who's been there for two years at IU and then another one who will be joining him in the fall. So two reasons in my book. I, I grant, it, grant you it's not highfalutin public policy here, but, but clearly there was, when you have a highway that is complete everywhere from Detroit to Houston, Texas, with one exception, now granted most of those portions of the have been in place for, for decades, yeah. but when everything else is done and one part isn't, and it doesn't seem to be ever changing for months at a time, Clearly, something was amiss, and, and you would say in hindsight, and I'm being somewhat facetious here, but surely in hindsight that, that something could have done to rectify the problem. Was this perhaps a problem of we didn't have a governor in the state for about six months? <laughs> I think the, the, the problems go beyond the, before the governor was spending his time running for election. Um, the fundamental question here are the public-private partnerships. And, you know, there are solid rationales for doing those kinds of things in some areas. Uh, but John mentioned civil engineering. Um, some things that the state can just do better. And I think managing a major uh, project, like building a road, um, is one where the state has always had the resident expertise, has always had the mechanism in place, and has taken that risk. And the reason is because you can also bond against that asset, and so it's, it's usually um, a less expensive process for the state to go that way. It takes the profit motive out. So I think the problem goes back much further than the governor's absence while he was uh, campaigning. But it starts with the governor. Uh, because the, the desire for a public-private partnership in this regard and to enrich the money people along the way is what's going to wind up costing Hoosiers more money and, what, two years of delay to build a highway that the state could have handled through bonding. We had a double uh, A-plus credit rating, and we didn't use it because they wanted to enrich some money men along the way, and it's going to cost us a lot. Now, there was a call last fall on my husband's part to... Uh, Eric Holcomb to do something about it as he was lieutenant governor and the governor was MIA and nothing was said largely because of course Mike Pence was running for vice president at the time but it's been a disgrace I mean you can't get from here to Bloomington easily and you can and the number of accidents the hours and hours and hours of delay commuters might, have put up with it might the issues with this particular project put Eric Holcomb off future public-private partnerships Look, public-private partnerships work in some cases, and they've worked. Uh, I will make the case for the toll road. They, they work for the Ohio River you bridges. Have an argument there. I, I do have an argument there, and I'm making it. The other and way so, around. No, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. And they have worked, and they've been helpful to extend the opportunity for us to offload the risk onto the contractors and let us uh, have our money um, end up uh, going further, right? And so, this is, in this case, yeah, you know, this did not go well ultimately. But the Holcomb administration stepped in and fixed it. Now we're back on a double A-plus bond rating. All the bondholders are made whole. It's no increase, by the way. You've said it's an increase in cost. It will yeah, not they're be. They're going to be paid the premium. They will not gotten. be an increase in cost. It will stay with the timetable yeah. we uh, set this last winter. We've got to see the numbers winter. on that first. 
when you, you're going to see it met. You're going to see it meet mm -hmm. the timeline that was already well, set by the governor. Yeah, he's and it's going to come in at cost and maybe months. even save some money. So I want to And you just spoke, and when you start, they're to talk paying about a it, premium to the bondholders, yeah. John. Can you, we can we read too much into? They are not paying any more public-private partnerships themselves with the problems of this one public-private partnership. That's a very good point because there are, shall we say, extenuating circumstances here. Well, this, this state, and certainly this city where we're sitting, has a rich tradition of using public-private partnerships effectively. I mean, we have, in the big scheme, I mean, we have a sports infrastructure. We have a lot of facilities that probably would not have been built otherwise. I think the, the point here is, is a good one. It's not all good or all bad, but where does the expertise arise? And you have some projects where, you know, the state hasn't maybe engaged in them before with certain types of, again, athletic facilities or something that is a very specialized. You do it once in a generation or two. And then you got roads. And yeah. certainly, if there's anything the state knows how to do, it's how to administer the construction of roads. So I think we just need to be more selective. Will this arguably end up making better deals in the future because they're going to hopefully learn from the mistakes of this one? Yeah, I think so. I, I think there, um, the, the failure that occurred, because that's what it is in this case, um, will be, they will go to school on that. Um, you know, the, the contractor was, was chosen, the contractor went under, um, you know, but the, the whole thing the failed. The toll road went under also. Yeah, but, but, but different you know, circumstances. They, they had a habit that, of that asset exists. The, the asset is continuing. In this case, Brandon, I would just add to John's. Yeah, I do, I do yeah, think sure. that they, are, they will go to school on this, and, and I think going forward you will see the rest of the highway finished in an in a, uh, efficient manner, uh, and we'll see how yeah, the, because the work outcome is, is. The work is continuing. The subcontractors are being paid. The road is being built. And it's an ongoing, um, it's continuing success for that stretch that will then complete All this right. Canada and Mexico. That's Indiana so. Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican John Hammond, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.